Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. This week, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Kara New Daggett about her book, Birth of Energy, Fossil Fuels, Thermodynamics, and the Politics of Work, out from Duke University Press in 2019. And Birth of Energy is a genealogy of the idea of energy itself from its origins in the 19th century and into the 20th century when energy becomes a principal objective of statecraft. Birth of energy is not only a novel look at the development of industrial capitalism, but also an exciting and poignant reflection on the place of energy in contemporary society. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my interview with Professor Daggett. So, Kara, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So, I'd like to begin just a, the interview with a few words about how you came to this project and uh, where it fits in your own intellectual trajectory. Yeah, this book um, really came to be through a question I had, which was about. Um, how did energy come to mean fuels in politics? Because I, uh, my background is political science. But the reason I was even interested in that question was that I studied uh, biochemistry as an undergraduate and so have always been interested in the politics of science and technology and then increasingly um, environmental politics. And so I had just noticed that um, energy, things like energy forecasts, energy companies, energy departments were actually a pretty um, recent development, but there, there wasn't really a lot of thinking about how energy came to mean what it does and in, in how it gets talked about in politics. So that's where it began. But and coming from the field of political science, why take a historical approach to this? Um, I think I just, in some ways, um, because I studied different fields, um, I don't, I don't ever pose questions or answer them within any given discipline. Um, and in some ways, I picked political science because it I felt like at least my program, uh, my graduate program at Johns Hopkins offered a really capacious understanding of what it meant to study politics, which might include philosophy, history, humanities. Um, so I already approached the field in an interdisciplinary way. And um, I think... Honestly, anything that you study inside of environmental politics or issues are inherently interdisciplinary. 
So this question and ter- your your questions about history, um, I think history is important for politics because it helps to disrupt the status quo and common sense. So if there's a problem that's happening and it has to do perhaps with some common sense understandings we might have about the world, common sense understandings we might have about energy, sometimes we accept that common sense as if it's a timeless knowledge that's never been different. And history is really helpful to political science in the sense that it shows us how common sense itself changes and comes to be. And that tells us things could be different, which I think is a very powerful um, knowledge to have in terms of how we think about structuring political systems and um, especially how we think about science and technology. Yeah, and your book begins to disrupt this common sense right off the bat with the title. Um, Can you explain that title and, and how that reflects what's happening in your book? Yeah, so the title was, um, I think, came out of what I found very early on in my research that surprised me, having taken fairly advanced science classes as an undergraduate in physics, um, chemistry, biology, and so on. I did not know how recent the science of energy was. And I guess some of my friends who studied the history of science, maybe that wouldn't have been surprising. But energy felt to me like it was um, perhaps a longstanding scientific concept on par with something like matter or um, or these other kind of foundational knowledges that we have. And so part of what was really interesting to me was that energy doesn't even come to have a meaning in physics until the middle of the 19th century. Um, And that very much, I think, is the moment when it also begins to have a meaning for politics and social systems. And so the title, The Birth of Energy, is, is first introducing people to this notion that energy is just not something we've known about forever in the sense that we know it now in the modern world. And how is it, how does the idea that emerges in the 19th century different from the ones that precede it? Because uh, there are various ways in which people try to conceive of life force or, or movement or change. Uh, what happens in the 19th century that's so different? Right. So that's part of why it be, it's easy now to back cast energy prior to the 19th century, because you could say there's been a longstanding human interest in, like you said, a study of change over time and what things might be held constant over time as things change. Um, and there's a longstanding, I think, in, in many what we think of now as world religions or um, natural philosophical systems, those kind of knowledges emerge too. So the notion of chi or um, prana uh, all points to thinking about what are universal units and how do they change over time and how do we how does that affect our ethics? 
And so the word energy itself, um, in terms of the English word that, that we have, the etymology of that word comes out of Socrates, the ancient Greek word energeia. Um, and for Socrates, it, it was very much a word that um, had philosophical import. He was trying to point to the way goodness was a dynamic project. So you, you getting away from the notion that you become good and then you just are good. Um, he wanted to point to the fact that um, goodness was an ongoing process or achievement or set of activities. So what was interesting there is that from the beginning, the word itself, had an ethical connotation connected to dynamism, connected to activity. Um, But of course, Socrates wasn't interested in the kind of steam engine productivism that later was really the context for the history of energy. So before the 19th century, you certainly have... um, a lot of different traditions thinking about change and then thinking about heat. Heat wasn't understood very well either. But none of these were connected in one scientific theory or hypothesis. They weren't connected yet to the word energy, which was still a very kind of uncommon word, especially in the English language uh, until the middle of the 19th century. Um, And it was more a word for poets and philosophers than it was a scientific word. Um, And then, of course, humans before the 19th century obviously used fuels and machines, but they didn't have a scientific notion of energy to explain the processes and work that machines were doing. And you write that the the concept that becomes energy in the 19th century and which, uh, which comes down to us today, it was not so much the product of pure or basic scientific research, but really came from more practical thinkers trying to make sense of the steam engine in particular. Can you explain this and the significance of this shift uh, for how we understand this history? Yeah, so the the entire emergence of energy, I think, first of all, historians of science have um, really done a lot of work to put it into context and move away from the notion that energy was discovered that there was this discovery moment with, you know, a great heroic scientist who had a light bulb go off and said, ah, there's energy. But instead to think about how energy um, emerges out of really dozens of different ongoing experiments and like I think like your question is pointing to, these weren't even experiments necessarily in the way we might think about them um, in quote unquote uh, basic science where you're in a lab. These were more uh, often people trying to tinker with engines and especially steam engines and new machines and frustrated with the fact that 
the they didn't fully understand how steam engines worked because they didn't fully understand heat and that these engines were not very efficient and because they couldn't understand how they worked they also couldn't um, make them more efficient and that was really important i think because under it points to underneath the emergence of a knowledge of energy was really a drive for efficiency and efficiency would be good because then you could profit off of more efficient engines. Um, and indeed, some of the early thinkers who are called kind of discoverers of energy, like William Thompson, or even earlier, um, some of the work that Watt did with the steam engine uh, is recuperated as part of the history of the science of energy. These people became very wealthy. Um, and had many patents that kind of followed from the work that they were doing with steam engines. And of course the steam engine also inaugurates this new chaotic world of commodified labor, of proletarian classes, of the integration of humans and machines and the processes of production. How does energy, how was it used to also conceptualize this new world of work? Yeah, so the 19th century was really a tumultuous period. And um, whenever, when I'm teaching histories of the modern world to my students, we have an ongoing joke because I always will say, you know, when did this happen? (laughs) The 19th century, because the 19th century... um, is when all of these uh, different industrial, global capital, global imperialism, it's not when any of them begin, but it's when a lot of them, I think, become knit together, accelerate, intensify, and take off. And the history of the science of energy happens really in the midst of this. So again, energy itself doesn't catalyze or cause any of these changes. These changes are already happening. Um, The social change, the urbanization, um, the growth of a wage labor class, the um, growth of global capitalism, steam engines are already established and taking off in different industries. So energy doesn't lead to any of these things, but what it helps to do is make sense of um, how work happens and how to make work more efficient. And what I found that was so interesting is that many of the scientists of energy who become leading figures as the early physicists and early energy scientists were um, in northern Britain, and um, especially the Glasgow area, which is a big shipbuilding area, and were uh, very uh, immersed often in the Scottish Presbyterian tradition. And there's a way that that Scottish Presbyterianism and the desire to kind of make this new world comport with um, religions which are really feeling under threat by all these new sciences like evolution most famously and all these new industrial processes 
um, a scientist of energy see in energy a way to also uh, kind of adapt the, this, this kind of Protestant tradition to this new modern global world. And I find that fascinating because, you know, soon after, decades later, as the U.S. emerges as a global industrial leader, of course, we know that Protestantism is also very important to um, American culture uh, and certain leaders in the U.S. are often associated with the Protestant church, too. And so the this sort of um, religious or spiritual aspect to energy, which I think is often really remains unacknowledged or underacknowledged because it's thought of as this, you know, pure scientific term. I found that really interesting. Um, yeah. Can you describe just a little bit more of this, how energy is getting integrated into this new um, sort of natural theology? Yes. So um, the science of energy had uh, its big two laws of thermodynamics were, were sort of the birth of the science of energy. Um, and thermodynamics, of course, is pointing to it's the study of heat thermodynamics. And so the first law was um, essentially a conservation law. And in many ways, uh, as a conservation law, it did uh, resonate with a lot of these ancient traditions that we have already talked about, about the notion that there is something conserved across change. So the first law of thermodynamics is saying energy um, is not created or destroyed. So across change, across some kind, any kind of change, really, the energy on the before side of the equation equals the energy on the after side of the equation. Now, the form of energy might change, but you could do essentially a math equation um, and count upon that equality, at least in a closed system. The second law, which is colloquial, colloquially the law of uh, having to do with entropy, is really where things got a little weirder. Uh, and that's the, that's the law that states that um, the energy, although it might be conserved, spontaneously tends to go into a more disordered state. And of course, in a more disordered state, or some people think of it as dissipation, it can do less work. So you might have the same amount of energy, but the world tends toward states that can do less work. And the, um, the poetic way of saying that is things fall apart or things tend toward um, the heat death of the universe, which was a big fear at the time. So those were theologically translated as, especially the second law, the law of entropy, as um, an echo of some of the tragic sense of the Bible about the earth shall wax old like a garment. Um, a sense that the earth itself was not a reflection of the perfection of God, but rather was 
a world that was tending toward um, disorder, diffusion, dissipation, sin, even waste. And therefore, the knowledge of energy becomes um, perceived as kind of a duty that once you know how to make energy more efficient in its use, and once you know how to minimize waste, you can use that knowledge to fight against this dissipating earth. And, and God alone is exempt from this kind of dissipation, this entropy process. And so unlike evolution, which I think was more, um, was a more kind of existential threat to the Bible and the notion of God and was perceived that way, energy had this way that it could be translated into a Christian ethic. And already, of course, we had a work ethic that was very tightly bound to these Christian traditions. And so this, in a way, layers on top of this pre-existing work ethic and gives you actually math equations and um, new ways of organizing labor and running machines and running factories, new kinds of engineering knowledges that could make that work ethic into a tool that managers of labor and machines could use to sort of increase the virtue of the machine by minimizing waste. And as um, as you're right, I mean the ideas of uh, of evolution and then later ecology became uh, significant elements of imperial ideologies as we enter this era of modern imperialism. How does energy fit into that um, that nexus? As you say, um, ecology and evolution are really important imperial knowledges. And there's quite a lot of work about that history. And so what was interesting to me is that um, the world of physics and energy more specifically doesn't appear in a lot of that scholarship. And it's not hard to see why, because when you go back and look at, for example, science in Africa, which is a 1920s survey of all the different Western scientists and how, how they have advanced different knowledges of Africa as a colonial project, if you look at the glossary and the index of that, you won't see physics. It, it's mostly um, forestry, ecology, tropical disease, um, and so on. And so I think, in a way, energy gets missed because what I show in the book and what I try to tease apart is how energy becomes important to how ecology and evolution are understood to function. Um, but very quickly, uh, becomes this common sense that um, can detach itself from physics and pulls upon the sort of older philosophical notions of energy and these ethical notions of energy, but now it's married to uh, an engineering science. Um, and so what I try to do is look at some of these imperial sciences, ecology and evolution, and Think about how assumptions about 
energy are important to them. So as a as an example, evolution is used in social Darwinism and by imperial managers to provide this kind of justification for or mapping of other cultures onto a supposed evolutionary schema where the denial of um, self-government to colonial peoples, for example, is then justified by uh, the notion that different cultures are not ready for self-government according to an evolutionary um, knowledge. So they haven't evolved yet towards the higher, quote-unquote, higher civilizations um, like Europe. But what energy does is gives a more specific understanding of why and why why Westerners could think of their civilizations as higher. It was often about their having these new industrial machines and their having a sense of themselves as highly productive and intensely um, uh, advancing in terms of all of these um, steam-driven processes. And so underneath that was a sense that Europeans had advanced evolutionarily because they had followed these energy knowledges. They had been able to put energy to use to better discipline labor and machines. And therefore, that provides a script for what development was going to look like, supposedly. Yeah, and and in your book, you show that this this theory of of energy and energy efficiency isn't just uh, about imperial ideology but is very much put into action in uh places like indian schools and uh in other colonial institutions meant to reform subject peoples um and and this is very uh interesting because uh, in many ways, as we rethink energy now and in the light of global warming, uh, we feel uh, incredibly compelled to seek ever greater efficiency, whether it's through our light bulbs or our automobiles or um, in, our, in just our own daily lives in which we seek to uh, do the same with less input. Uh, but you show that there's also this very ugly side of this kind of energy efficiency. Uh, how do you see the sense of energy efficiency being weaponized and um, imposed upon uh, subjugated peoples. Right. So this is um, what I'm still thinking through in terms of its contemporary import. The way that energy becomes a tool for governance of especially racialized and gendered people um, is through making energy this object that needs to be accounted for in a in an almost obsessive way. So you have to count all the imports in all the energy that's going into a system and then all the energy that's coming out, find places where you could improve the efficiency. And so this corresponds to a much broader history of, you know, the rise of an information age where 
we are accelerating all of um, the data that we're collecting about the world. And then really, I think we're still in this situation where we don't necessarily have all of the resources to be able to actually do something with all of this data. And this, of course, now is the problem of big data. But that was a problem in the 19th century, too. And energy was one of these sets of mathematical calculations that could help make sense of all of the data and even tell us what kinds of data to collect. And so in part of the book, I look at some of the um, practices and even uh, syllabi or textbooks from schools set up in the U.S. for uh, recently enfranchised Black children and for board, uh, Native American children who were mo- often forcibly sent to boarding schools. Um, and of course, these are both highly racialized environments, um, but they are part of the birth of technical um, education in the U.S. And so the sense that um, that receiving a technical education was this path toward becoming a civilized, kind of um, westernized member of the U.S. citizenry was already apparent there. And a lot of how that gets mapped onto the classroom and onto the bodies of laborers is by trying to increased surveillance of every single um, energy function that's happening. And then, of course, energy is this enormous concept that can almost include or touch upon anything that is happening in our lives. So things like nutrition, um, sleep, activity, all of exercise, all of this can be translated in energy terms and then related to how good are we at work and how can, how can we be better at work? And ultimately, this efficiency, this drive for efficiency is about the end of the desire for more productivity. And so in terms of what that means for energy today, it certainly doing this research has made me a lot more cautious and skeptical about uh, answers that rely upon tracking energy and making energy efficient just because of this history in which that was used as a tool for um, expropriation and exploitation of laborers. Um, and usually a tool, again, for the purposes of productivity, not necessarily um, for the purposes of sustainability. Yeah, and that brings me around to one of my favorite aspects of this book. Um, <clears throat> so when we look at academic writing on the Anthropocene, feminist scholarship has had a, a huge impact. And uh, as many of the authors I've interviewed on this show have remarked, uh, from feminists, um, we've gotten a persistent critique of the idea of universal man and of the idea that the Anthropocene represents um, an age of man in which all of humanity is 
uh, both experiencing and 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 created uh, this impending disaster. Um, and you know, instead, feminism has provided us a, a long uh, and refined set of tools to critique this sense of the anthropos, the the universal man, as not universal at all, but specific and situational. But in your work, you draw on another line of feminist critique, and this has to do with the politics of work. Can you describe this politics and work and how it's reflected in your scholarship and what you see as the possibilities? Yeah, so when I started this book with the question, how did we come to think about energy this way? I really had no preconception or interest in the politics of work or even work itself in terms of a sep- uh, an activity or domain of scholarship or research. And that hadn't even been uh, my expertise. I hadn't really studied political economy, at least at that point in my graduate studies. That's not what I was reading. And it was really in answering the question and starting to see how work became the nexus through which the science of energy was translated politically, I saw that 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 I would have to become a political economist and I would have to start thinking about work in order to answer this question that I had. Um, and to me, it became increasingly obvious that the problem with energy was the problem with work and that they were intimately connected. And by the problem of work, I mean the problem of modern wage labor under the capitalist system as we know it. And that's, I mean, even that we have to uh, start to think about how all activity becomes thought about in relation to quote unquote work. I think is part of the problem. Um, and so when when I was getting towards the end of the book, when I wanted to start to think about what is the, what is the um, impact of this research for how we think about the problem of energy today, I really was reading broadly in critiques of work. Who has thought about work critically and not just... Um, Within the domain of work, how can we work, make work better and more fair, which, is, which are important questions, but work itself, why do we value work so highly? Why is work the be-all and end-all of what we think of as well-being and citizenship? Um, because in researching energy, I had seen how that understanding of work itself is a very modern and recent um, uh, phenomenon. And when I was looking at critiques of work, um, I have always uh, approached problems and questions from a feminist perspective or thinking about feminist questions as I do my research. And so, of course, um, I think in terms of critiques of work, Feminists and also critical race theorists um, both have really been at the vanguard of um, rethinking work and really uh, trying to imagine what it might mean to oppose work itself, not just uh, try to operate within 
the field of work, in other words, um, make demands through the language of work. And that an example of that would be the kind of Sheryl Sandberg lean in feminism, like a feminism that says, I want to be a worker who's treated more fairly. But instead, notice that work itself has marginalized um, so many people and that humans have arranged themselves uh, and arranged their work in so many different ways. And this is just one way that really has, uh, in my research, what I see is it really has failed most people. So the feminist post-work tradition is really where I end the book, and that is drawing a lot on the work of Kathy Weeks, who wrote a book called The Problem with Work. Um, and, you know, she starts her book with the question of, or with the, the observation that even to think against work is, um, is quite rare and difficult to do. Yeah. So are there aspects of your book that we haven't covered that you want to make sure are part of this interview? Let's see. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure there are things that we haven't covered, but perhaps that's a um that's a way for people to to go read more about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean there's much much in this book which is very rich and um definitely deserves a very close read and uh, we don't need to necessarily um, read it out loud. So uh, in that case, what are you working on next? Right now, uh, I'm glad you ended with the question about feminism because I have um, partnered with two of my colleagues. One's a sociologist named Shannon Bell, and the other is an anthropologist named Christine Lebusky. And we are working on a feminist energy project. So we all have researched different aspects of energy with a feminist perspective. And we have noticed that um, in the field of energy studies, a lot of the gender-sensitive research has really so far focused on women's experiences with energy, so access to energy, unequal representation in energy decision-making and design. And of course, these are, these are crucial feminist questions, but we really felt like feminism has a lot more to offer in terms of how we study power more broadly. And we wanted to kind of... Um, lay out what a feminist energy research agenda might look like, uh, pulling on all the eco-feminist um, research that already exists and tr trying to sort of bring that into the different problems that energy itself poses in terms of designing new energy systems. So that's been really exciting and in some ways is a nice follow-on to this book in terms of thinking more about contemporary problems. Yeah. And do you see this as developing as a book project or a, a different sort of production? Yes, that's our hope. Um, we just submitted an article for review and um, the article was really an overview of Feminist, a feminist energy research agenda, but what we'd like to do next is think about um, studying particular cases uh, and particular energy systems that might have different 
dimensions that are doing feminist experiments with energy and turn it into a bigger research project and yeah, hopefully book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I look forward uh, to that coming out and hopefully I'll be able to speak to you about it then. Oh, good. Uh, Thanks. Well, I want to thank you so much for writing this book, which has made me rethink energy in so many, so many ways, uh, in so many important ways as we need to reconsider its place in our lives and its production and um, and what we should even consider to be um, the appropriate use of energy. So thanks again, and I look forward to your new works. Thank you, Lance.